0: Uh, If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 4, we're going to look at just chapter 4, 36, to chapter 5, verse 11. So the last couple verses of chapter 4, and then up to chapter 5, verse 11. If you're following along on a mobile device, and you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, um, and I believe it's going to be on the screen behind me as well. Acts chapter 4, verses 36 to five eleven. This is the reading of God's word. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also." At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Amen. Uh, Well, if you've been with us uh, for the past few weeks, you know that our church has been in a series through the book of Acts, which is all about the birth of the church. And up to this point, it feels like this church is on fire. Okay? People are so bought into the church's vision and values that it seems like they're unfazed even in the face of massive persecution, in the face of opposition and resistance coming their way. If anything, it almost feels like their first taste of persecution has given them this new surge of conviction and energy. Uh, if you remember at the beginning of chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested for preaching the gospel. They're brought before the authorities and they're threatened that if they keep doing this, they're going to face some real consequences. And so what do they do? They keep doing it, right? We read that they prayed for boldness, the spirit showed up, and immediately they're back out on the streets proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the church just keeps growing. At the beginning of Acts 2, uh, we know that there were about 120 believers gathered together in the upper room. By the end of Acts 4, scholars predict that the number was probably at about 10,000. This is a rapidly growing church. And we read last week that all these believers were of one heart and one mind, sharing all their possessions so that there was not one needy person among them. Like, I want you to think about how insane that is. A church of 10,000 plus people sharing one heart, And one mind giving away all that they have to complete strangers. And they're not giving away their leftovers. They're not giving out of a surplus. We read that they're giving their own homes. They're giving their private property. They're giving away their land. They're sacrificing their way of life to meet the needs of others. Like many of us can't even conceive of our own families being like this. And yet you have a church of 10,000 plus people operating in perfect harmony with itself and chapter 4 ends by highlighting a man who perfectly embodies everything that's happening in this community this man joseph whom the apostles called barnabas and we read that he sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles feet so they could then distribute the money to someone in need amazing but then you have chapter 5 immediately after this and in the first two verses of chapter 5, we're introduced to another man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, who also sold a piece of property and brought it to the apostles' feet. But they, they didn't bring the whole amount, right? Rather than give all the proceeds away, we read that they kept a little piece for themselves. Sin has officially entered the church. Now, I get asked a lot what I believe to be the greatest threat to Christianity and the church today in the modern age, and I think a lot of people believe that the greatest threat to Christianity is something that's happening outside of the church, politics, secularism, media, progressivism, and so we do so much. We do everything in our power to basically protect ourselves and our family members from all these outside forces. But if there's anything this story is going to show us today is that the greatest threat to Christianity may not be what's happening on the outside, but what's happening on the inside. That the problem isn't with those heathens out there, but maybe the problem is with you and me in here. And we can infer this because of how God deals with this situation of Ananias and Sapphira. Like you literally, like I want you to think about this, right? In chapter 4... You literally have the authorities taking uh, the apostles, putting them in jail, threatening their lives, and God just lets it happen. He does not do anything about it. And yet in chapter 5, with this issue that doesn't seem like that big of a deal at all in the grand scheme of things, God acts swiftly and decisively. Okay, if you know this story, it's pretty wild. Okay, so Peter, he calls out Ananias on what he's done. Ananias doesn't even get to respond, and then it's just like, wha-bam, he's dead, okay? Well, a few hours go by. His poor wife walks in, not knowing anything that's happened. Peter gives her an opportunity to come clean. She doesn't. Wha-bam, she's dead, okay? I don't know why I keep saying wha-bam, okay? I, that's what I think the, like, the lightning of God sounds like. Wha-bam, she's dead, okay? Like two people just drop dead out of nowhere, okay? And this, understandably, has this entire community shook, And it says, we we read, Great fear seized the whole church and all who had heard about these events. Now, you have to ask the question, why is this story in here? It does not make sense. Like, it always confused me because it feels so out of place. You have this beautiful community that God is forming. The Spirit is clearly moving. Everyone is of one heart and one mind. They're sharing all their stuff. They're boldly proclaiming the gospel, even in the face of persecution. And then suddenly God just goes like Old Testament out of nowhere. It almost feels like God has like a momentary lapse of judgment where he forgot that we're living on the other side of Jesus. Like, remember God, Jesus came, he died on the cross, he forgave us for our sins. You're not supposed to do stuff like this. And it feels like the punishment is way too harsh for the crime. Like, people in the Bible, I mean, for sure, like, you read the Old Testament, people in the Bible have definitely done way worse, and God just lets them live. And so, this feels uncharacteristically excessive, okay? And I know all the parents in the room can understand, like, can relate to this, right? Like, right now, I'm teaching my kids, they're old enough, I'm teaching them how to read the room. You know, I'm like, that's a very important skill to have as you grow up, you know, learn how to read the room. And I'm, you know, recently, I was like, look, if you notice your mom hasn't eaten in a few hours, you know, and she's having a tough day, like, leave her alone, you know? Like, don't, you know, don't, like, don't piss her off, because you're going to pay for it, you know? And, and uh, you know, obviously, the kids, they don't listen to me, and so they'll, they'll say something to my wife that wouldn't be a big deal on most days, just a passing comment, like, You never do anything fun for us, or something like that. Um, And most days, a statement like that, not a big deal at all. Um, But, you know, my wife hasn't eaten in a few hours. You know, she's coming with the wrath, right? And she's like, What you say? She's like, Say that again. Say that again, right? And, you know, as parents, we have to be a united front. So I'm like, Oh man, she's like, So I have to be like, don't you ever say that again, you know? Um, But in my mind, I'm like, we got to bring it down a notch, okay? This isn't that big of a deal. Um, If I'm Peter, right, and I'm in in this story, like, and, and I could be misinterpreting this, so, you know. Um, this is my interpretation. I, th- I like to get into the stories in Scripture myself. If I'm Peter, and I, I know that, you know, I go up to Ananias, and I'm calling him out on something, right? I don't know that I'm expecting God to, like, wha-bam him right there, okay? Because he calls him out, um, I, and I'm pretty sure even Peter wasn't expecting the guy to just drop dead, and I'd be like, whoa, God, like, I was just trying to have a Conversation with him, like this was supposed to be like a gentle rebuke, but he's dead, right? Which is why I think Peter gives Sapphira like a chance to come clean. And because in his mind, he's probably like, today's not the day you want to be messing with God, right? She doesn't come clean, and he's like, GG, I gave you a chance. You're gone too. You know, the same guys who took your husband out, they're going to take you out, okay? And and as you're reading this, maybe you're wondering too, like, what was it that Ananias and Sapphira did that warranted them getting killed? They didn't hurt anyone. They didn't really steal anything. They sold their own property, and they still gave some of the proceeds away. Like, that had to count for something, right? And yet, because they lied about it, God strikes them dead. Like, I used to think this passage was all about greed or hoarding, right? Like, not being able to give all of what we have to God, something like that. But it's very clear, actually, when you read this story, that the primary offense here is lying. In verse 3, Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? And then later, in a couple of verses later, he says, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. The emphasis is clearly on lying. Now, does this mean God is going to strike dead everyone who lies? Obviously not, because if that was the case, none of us would be alive right now, okay? They say that the average American lies about four times per day, okay? So, I mean, can you imagine, like, hey, you like my new haircut? Love it. Well, bam, dead, right? <laughs> Sorry, I can't make it into work today. I'm feeling a little sick. Bam, you're dead, right? I mean, obviously, this is certainly not, like, God, God is not trying to tell us that everyone who lies, I'm going to strike dead, right? But whenever something in scripture feels pretty extreme or flies in the face of our own expectations, it means we have to pay attention because it usually means God must be attempting to convey something significant. And more specifically, he must be attempting to convey something significant about the type of community he wants to form. Like there are all sorts of sins that God could have singled out as this first church is being established. But of all the sins, he wants everyone to know that the one sin he will not tolerate in his church is lying and hypocrisy. It's as though God is sending a clear message that the biggest threat to true community is people who pretend to be something or someone they're not. If there's one thing that is clear throughout Scripture, it's that God cannot stand those who project a certain image of themselves and hide who they really are. It wasn't the immoral, irreligious people who God was harshest with. It was always the people who acted religious as a way to lie to themselves and others. It was the people who, who acted like they were doing something good, who acted kind, who acted generous. In Isaiah 1, God is talking to a group of hyper-religious people who think they're doing all the right things. Right? They pray, they gather to worship, they make extravagant sacrifices, they fast, and yet he calls them out, and this is what he says, And and this is the message translation, and I want you to imagine God speaking to the church like this. This is what he says in Isaiah 1. Quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games, monthly conferences, weekly Sabbaths, special meetings, 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 meetings. I can't stand one more. Meetings for this, meetings for that. I hate them. You've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion, 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 while you go right on sinning. When you put on your next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or loud or often you pray, I'll not be listening. That's Isaiah 1. I read this. I was like, I am so sorry, God. And what you realize here is that God isn't upset simply because his people aren't living upright lives. He's upset because they're living a certain way and yet using their religiosity to pretend they're something they're not. They're prayer performances, he says. And it's hard not to see the parallels between this story and the story of Adam and Eve. You could almost say Adam and Eve were the first community ever created. Um, this week, in our Bible reading group, we looked at Genesis 3, when sin enters the world. And one thing that is very clear is that the first consequence of sin entering the world is that it creates a need for human beings to hide. In Genesis 2, at the end, you read that the man and his wife were naked and unashamed. The default posture of humanity was one of complete openness and vulnerability but what sin did to us is that it produced in all of us this deep need to hide and cover our true selves as soon as adam and eve disobey god take a bite out of the fruit what happens they realize they're naked and then what do they do we read that they sew fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves and for from that moment on the default posture of humanity has not been one of openness and vulnerability but one of hiding. In the very next story, not only do you see Cain murder his brother Abel in cold blood, what do you see him try to do? He tries to hide it. In Genesis 37, not only do you see Joseph's brother sell Joseph into slavery, what do they do? They try to hide it. Not only does King David commit adultery, he tries to hide what he's done. It isn't just that Ananias keeps some of the proceeds of the sale of his property for himself. It's that he tries to hide what he's done. It's that he tries to pretend he's someone he's not. Everyone wants to cover themselves. Everyone is afraid to be seen for who they really are. And so we hide and we hide and we hide. You see, in the first few chapters of Acts... We, like Luke records for us, and Luke creates this picture of an Eden-esque community, right, where people are living in perfect harmony with one another and with God. It's this community marked by radical unity and radical generosity. It's a community living the way it was meant to be lived. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the very first internal problem the early church has to deal with is the problem of people hiding who they really are. Adam and Eve, Ananias and Sapphira. Right? The enemy is very, very smart and shrewd, but the enemy is not creative. The enemy is extremely predictable. From the beginning of time, the enemy has attempted to destroy community by convincing us we need to hide by making us believe that we would not be loved or accepted if people knew who we really are. And I don't have to convince you this is a problem because we live in Los Angeles in 2023. We live in the image capital of the world, in the age of social media, where we are trained to craft a curated version of ourselves, where we have so many resources at our disposal that allow allow us to hide the reality of who we really are. We hide behind our filters. We hide behind our wealth, our looks, our popularity. And for many of us, we hide behind our religiosity. Like Ananias and Sapphira, we want to prove to everyone around us that we're good people, that we're generous people, that we're kind people. We're good husbands and fathers and mothers and wives. We're good Christians. We don't want to be canceled or rejected. We want people to see us in a certain light. And slowly but surely, our entire existence becomes one big performance as a way to mask who we really are and what's really underneath the surface. I am a second generation Korean American immigrant, and I can tell you, I knew a lot of immigrant families growing up. I knew they were broke, but they always drove a nice car, and they always carried a nice bag. Like those were the givens. And you realize that, that desire to hide has been ingrained in us. And we still do it all the time. I do it all the time. Especially in my role as a pastor. There is a great temptation to project a certain image of myself to the congregation. There is a great temptation to be someone who I'm not really all the time. And God may not strike us dead on the spot, but one thing is for certain, this impulse to hide is killing us, and it is destroying all of our relationships. Well, what if I told you today that you don't need to hide anymore? What if I told you today that you don't need to put on an act, that you don't need to be someone you're not? What if I told you that you can come exactly as you are, with all your flaws and imperfections and shortcomings, and still be accepted and loved? Wouldn't that be amazing? To show someone the worst parts of yourself and then have that person tell you they still love you. You know, I think we read a story like Acts 5 and we think God is so punitive and harsh. But when you stop and really pause to reflect on what's happening here, you realize that this story is actually a reflection of the Father's love. That His reaction is actually an expression of His deep care and concern for His children. You know, I remember I used to attend a church in Boston where uh, after the service we would all get together and we would have a meal, um, and this is like this was actually before nut allergies became like a bigger thing and people started to become more aware that people were allergic to nuts. And I remember that uh, there was a child, four-year-old boy, severely allergic to nuts. Okay, and. We're all gathered there in the fellowship hall, everyone's eating, having a good time. And one of the older kids, I guess, gives the four-year-old boy like a peanut M&M. Without thinking, this mom, from the other side of the room, be like, stops her conversation mid-sentence, beelines it across the room. I'm not even kidding, there's a table full of food. She clears out the entire table full of food. All the food is on the ground. She grabs her son, puts him him on the table, takes her hand, reaches into his mouth, and pulls out the peanut M&M. And everyone was like, well, I guess dinner's over now. And it was so extreme for us, but it wasn't extreme for that mother because she knew what could kill her son. And she was willing to do everything in her power to make sure her son did not die what feels extreme and harsh for us is a picture of the father's love for his bride the church and he says if there's anything that will kill this community it's when people feel the need to hide who they really are and we see this impulse in the gospel itself a god who will willing to go to every extreme willing to endure every kind of humiliation and pain in order to save us. Jesus Christ, the only one who had absolutely nothing to hide, the only one who had a spotless record, had the sin and shame of all of humanity placed upon him on the cross. Jesus was stripped naked so that you and I would be clothed. This is the Father's heart. A father who deeply desires for his people to live in a community where they can come as they are with all their baggage and imperfections, knowing that Jesus died for them at their worst. This is the kind of community God longs for you and I to be a part of. Now, this text is not for us to say, oh my goodness, we have to be perfect like Barnabas, right? If we don't want God to kill us, right? No, The fact that Luke juxtaposes Barnabas with Ananias and Sapphira back to back is to say, look, in every community, you're going to have imperfection. Every community is going to have a mix of glory and brokenness. Every community is going to have a Barnabas, and it's going to have an Ananias and Sapphira. If you haven't been disappointed at this church, you just haven't been here long enough. I guarantee you, if you're at Citizens long enough, you will experience one of two things. At some point, you will experience the glory of God because you will meet some incredible people who embody Christ's love in incredible ways. You will see selfless acts of generosity and kindness and goodness. And I can say that because I've experienced it myself. But if you stay here long enough, you will also see the utter brokenness of our humanity. You will see gossip and anger and division and unforgiveness. You will encounter people who are difficult and selfish, but that is what makes the church the church. As they say, the church is not a museum for saints, but it's a hospital for sinners. What do you expect when you walk into a hospital? You expect to see a whole bunch of sick people In fact, the only reason you would be at a hospital is because you're probably sick too. Are you willing to be a part of a community like that? Because the message of Acts 5 is not, let's get rid of all the imperfect sinners in here. The message of Acts 5 is, let's be the type of church where sinners and imperfect people don't feel they need to be perfect, where they don't feel the need to hide where they don't feel like they have to pretend, a church where people are clothed in the grace of God. You see, God's grace has been clothing humanity from the very beginning of time. In Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sin, God looks at their feeble attempt to try to cover themselves with these fig leaves, and we read that he makes new garments of skin to clothe them. They still have to face the consequences of their actions, right? God spells out, this is, these are the consequences of what you've done. But after God tells them what those consequences are, we read that he closed them. It's like that hug a parent gives to his or her child after they've done something wrong. The child still has to face the consequences of their actions, but the hug afterwards says, but I still love you, and I'm doing this because I love you. There are still consequences for what Ananias and Sapphira did. God cannot just ignore sin. But the beauty of Acts 5 is that in spite of sin infiltrating the church, God does not abandon his people. In the next few verses, it's all about how the apostles continued to perform signs and wonders that God kept adding to the church daily, so much so that people were bringing the sick into the streets for them to be healed. God is so good and so kind and so gracious, he never abandons us. So the big question now is, how do we cultivate this kind of a community in a city like L.A., where we know that our first impulse is always going to be to wanna hide and pretend and perform. And I'm gonna give us just two quick applications. The first is accountability, and the second is affirmation. Accountability and affirmation. First, accountability. Accountability is a dirty word in the church, okay? Um, A lot of people get triggered by that word, and I understand, because for us, a lot of times when we think of accountability, We think of a pastor who finds out you sinned, brings you up on stage, and makes you confess to everyone. And we say, that's accountability. No, no, no. Accountability, all it means at its core is just inviting people into your life who you're willing to be vulnerable with. It's opening your life to others and providing a space where others can open their lives to you. It's practicing what it means to be fully known and fully loved. It's allowing people to say hard things that maybe you don't want to hear, and it's also being courageous enough to tell someone you love the hard things that maybe they don't want to hear. You see, when the gospel takes a hold of your life, it gives you both a supernatural confidence and a supernatural humility. It gives you the confidence to be absolutely vulnerable because there is nothing I can tell this other person that God doesn't already know. So I'm like, honestly, I have nothing to hide because God knows everything there is to know about me. God, knowing all the junk in my life, still loved me so much that he died for me. So you can judge me, you can think what you want about me, but it doesn't change the fact that I'm forgiven and accepted because of Christ's work on the cross. It gives you the supernatural confidence to be vulnerable. But not only that, it gives us a supernatural humility. That when somebody does open up their lives to us, and somebody does tell us, hey, I've been thinking some weird thoughts. Hey, I've done this thing that I'm kind of ashamed of. Hey, this thing has happened in my past. We don't respond by saying, oh my gosh. We're like, I can't believe you would do that. Or I don't think you can be here. I don't think we can be friends anymore. Rather than, our, rather than that being our first instinct, our first instinct will be, oh, you too? I'm broken just like you're broken. And I need grace just like you need grace. And let me tell you, if you don't have anyone in your life right now who can call you out, or you find yourself getting super defensive, anytime someone says something you don't want to hear, you're on a dangerous path. What Adam and Eve and Ananias and Sapphira have in common is that in both cases, it was one person who committed the act and the other person who stood there and did nothing. In Genesis 3, we read that it was Eve who bit the fruit, but for some reason, it's very clear that it says Adam was with her. In Acts 5, it said it was actually Ananias who held the money back. But it said Sapphira had full knowledge of what her husband had done. Because of that, both are responsible for what happens. We need accountability in the church. But second, along with a culture of accountability, we need a culture of affirmation. And that doesn't mean we go around and we say everything's good, because sometimes people need to be called out. Sometimes sin needs to be called out. Injustice needs to be called out. But let me tell you, the fastest way to choke community is to create a culture of condemnation and judgment where all we do is criticize and cut people down, where people start to feel like I have to behave a certain way in order for this community to accept me. Part of cultivating a gospel-shaped community is making it a point to regularly encourage and affirm one another so that those here know that they're created in the image of God, so that everyone around you knows that you're rooting for them and you won't abandon them even if you see the worst parts of them. You see, from Monday through Friday, many of us are walking into workplaces, many of us are finding ourselves in relationships where we feel like if we're not a certain way, we're going to be condemned here. We're not going to be accepted here. And so to be a part of ai I can't tell you how transformative it would be to be a part of a community where you come with all the worst parts of yourself and people say, it's okay, you're doing it. I see God working in your life. Hey, like, remember where you were two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago? You're making progress. Praise God. We need to hear that. We need to know that there is nothing that would separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You know, one of my, let me just close by saying, one of my favorite things we do as a church each week uh, is the practice of a confession, okay? And, you know, this is not to call out those of you who come late, but there is this thing before the sermon that we do called the practice of confession, okay? Just throwing that out there. It's really great, okay? Um, but that one minute of silence might be just as impactful, maybe even more impactful than listening to an entire sermon. And I believe that that one minute of confession is an act of resistance against a narrative that says we need to be hidden in order to be loved. We need to hide in order to be loved. In confession, we bring all of our brokenness to God, not because he doesn't already know everything and see everything, We bring all of who we are to God so that we can learn to live in the freedom the gospel gives us. And what happens right after we practice confession? We get words of assurance. They're God's words that remind us that there is nothing we could bring to God that would separate us from his love in Christ Jesus. This is the promise and joy of living in the gospel, to be fully known and fully loved. Let's pray. As our worship team comes back up, I want to give us an opportunity to respond. And as our eyes are closed, I just want to first say that all of you here in this room are a part of creating a type of culture here at Citizen's. And I would say there are two types of people that our text today is speaking to. And I believe there are two different invitations. I believe our text is speaking, one, to the person who is scared to be open and vulnerable, to bring the full, uh, to bring all of their life to this community. Because maybe you have experiences where you feel condemned, you felt condemned or judged, and it's, it, it breaks my heart that a lot of times the place we get condemned and judged the most is the church. I also believe that this text is speaking to the person who, whose natural first move is to condemn or to judge or to criticize. The person that maybe makes others feel like they will be condemned or judged if they bring you the reality of who they are. And whichever person you relate with today, the gospel invites you into a different story. And the invitation here is for both types of people to experience a fresh move of the grace of God. For the one who is afraid to be known, the gospel says nothing can separate you from my love. And for the one who is always critical and condemning, The gospel says no one is righteous, not one. We all need the grace of God. So let's ask for God's grace in this moment. Take some time to pray. Lord, we confess to you that we are serial hiders. That so much of our lives, we feel like we're playing a part. We're wearing a mask. We're projecting a certain image of ourselves to others, afraid to be known for who we really are. But God, we also confess that when we look underneath the surface, we recognize that we're all broken, We're all desperately in need of your grace. And I believe at this moment, the Father's heart is breaking as you see so many of your children continuing to live in bondage, continuing to live, feeling as though they have to be someone in order to be accepted and loved. God, we ask for your grace and your mercy again. We ask that you would remind us once again that you died for us at our very worst. And that because of your sacrifice, we're now accepted, loved by the creator of the universe. And I pray that we would learn to live in that freedom. Holy Spirit, help us help us to be a community where people can feel like they can be fully known knowing that they're going to be fully loved that they won't be abandoned that they won't be forsaken i pray that we would all be embodiments of the gospel especially in this city that makes it so difficult to do that god we ask for your help cultivate in us a community living in the freedom of the gospel We entrust this church and our lives into your loving hands. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.